Welcome to the Stacking Slabs podcast. Join Brett to get the latest sports cards investment advice, hear from industry experts that are deep in the trenches, and find out when to turn left when the rest of the market is going right. Get eBay ready, get PayPal ready. Let's be students of the game and stack those slabs. What is up? Welcome back to Stacking Slabs. Hobby hustle. It's Friday. You know what time it is. Another conversation with a collector in the hobby that matters. I got my man, Sierra, at California Card Collector, back on the pod to talk about a lot of topics. We're talking about ultra modern. We're talking about card shows, the rise of football. We're talking about BGS and PSA. A lot of ground covered. If you like what you've been hearing on the show, hit that subscribe button, leave a review. Are you getting the weekly rip? Hit the link in my Instagram bio. It's free. No big deal. Ship it over to you. Content from Stacking Slabs. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to deliver. Also, you got a little bit of time left. If you want a chance at the one-year free subscription of Card Ladder, post your card on Instagram. Share some perspective of why you love the card. Tag Card Ladder. Tag Stacking Slabs. Use the hashtag at Stacking Ladder. All right, enough plugs. Without further ado, let's kick it to the conversation. All right, everyone, welcome back. I'm excited to have Sierra here at California Card Collector, back here for the second time. The reason why I wanted to have him on is that I've got a lot of topics I've been talking about, and I feel like I'm in a, in a silo, and I needed a partner in crime to make sense of some of these topics and help validate it or tell me I'm crazy. Without further ado, how are you doing today, Sierra? I'm doing good. Uh, I'm doing great. You know, it's been a fun weekend. Kentucky Derby made one bet yesterday, 12 to one, and that paid off. Um, Card show this morning with my kids, helped them pick up some Pokemon cards. Uh, So, you know, a lot of fun. And and, uh, I had a birthday this week. My wife had a birthday. So we got, we even got away for a night uh, on Friday night. So. It's been an eventful weekend. I know the show launches on Friday, and right now it's Sunday afternoon. But um, great way to kind of cap the weekend, uh, chatting with you about cards. Well, happy belated to you guys. And we start the show. I think there's show definitely going on in Miami. I was following it via Instagram. This month, you've got the Wisconsin Dells show happening and the Dallas show, which I'm attending. So shows are opening back up. And you've got a show in your neck of the woods. Uh, I think that's kind of becoming a reoccurring thing, which is great. Maybe your show is not as on a big of a scale as some of these others, as I mentioned at this point. But maybe like what is happening at that show? What are some observations you've made? Is there anything you're noticing or are just people to be excited to be back talking face to face as opposed to on their phone? What, what's your observation? Well, I mean, uh, I've been to two of these shows now. Um, they're put on just quick shout out, uh, Nostalgic Avenue. Um, I don't know him well. Um, we met at the show a couple of weeks back, but uh, he just started, you know, putting on local shows. And he literally was renting out, I think, like a restaurant, you know, like on the on a Sunday when it was shut down. And now he's at kind of the uh, event center. It's like 40 tables, a lot of dealers down from like Orange County, Los Angeles, uh, you know, some local uh, LCSs. And um, it's packed, you know, a lot of uh, collectors there. Um, you know, there's a ton of diversification in the market right now with the shows, you know, a lot of soccer, 
a lot of Kobe, LeBron stuff, a lot of Pokemon stuff. Um, and, and baseball seems popular as well. So uh, there's a lot of energy at the show. A lot of collectors kind of walking around with their little box of cards that they're looking to kind of consolidate with, trade with, um, sell with. Um, and in terms of, you know, what you're seeing at these shows, I mean, this was a more regional show. So it's not, you know, it's not Dallas or it's not the Miami show. You're not seeing like the, you know, the heavy, heavy heat, but, you know, you're seeing a lot of rookie cards. You're seeing a lot of ultra modern stuff. Um, but it was a lot of fun. You know, I brought my kids and one, one thing that I really enjoyed about the show is there was a ton of dealers that had little packs set aside for kids and they're just giving them out, you know, freebies. Um, and so that was great. You know, I think that's important, uh, you know, getting kids involved. And there's quite a few kids at the show. Um, and I think, you know, for me, I, I wouldn't have come back to the hobby if I wasn't into collecting cards as a kid. So I do think that's an important element of shows uh, or a local LCS is just the ability to get kids involved. And given where prices are on everything, I think it's great that you've got kind of dealers that are setting aside, uh, you know, little packs for kids, um, you know, dollar, five dollar cards, that sort of thing that uh, are accessible for, for kids to collect. Yeah, that's good to hear. I think the topic of kids and the hobby will always be an important one and one that the hobby's looking at. I get questions all the time. Maybe it's shows. Shows provide a grassroots movement for kids to get introduced to the hobby. Um, but I think we all know where retail's at, so we're looking for new solutions all the time. Um, maybe talk to me through, you know, a lot of people who are listening haven't been to a show or heard it show or who have just been hearing about shows. I know it varies from show to show, but if you were generalizing it, take everyone through what you were seeing when you were walking through the show, like what was in the showcases and what was available at the show. Well, you know, uh, full disclosure, I did not buy anything at the show. Um, there is a lot of ultra modern slabs. Like that is definitely part of it, right? Like 2018 to present, you know, like prism, shiny cards. There's a, there's a ton of PSA 9s and PSA 10s uh, for ultra modern cards. Um, me specifically, most of what I was looking for was kind of 90s inserts um, for Kobe. And there really, there wasn't a lot of that. Um, so I, I would say what you see a lot of is kind of the liquid um, base or refractor or prism kind of uh, parallels of you know, ultra modern kind of rookie cards, Hall of Famers, things like that. And then you've got a lot of kind of autographs. Um, you know, I saw a fair amount of like Jordan rookies, Jordan autographs, things like that. But, um, you know, I would definitely say it's tilted towards kind of the ultra modern slab stuff that, you know, was pulled in the last one to two years and, and uh, you know, thrown in a slab. Yeah, maybe just touching on that. In my last episode, I talked about um, Prism and Prism losing some momentum and doing an analysis over some PSA 10s of five of the top rookies during that time. And, and there's been some pullback. And we're, I'm just trying to figure out and understand, if, is it exhaustion with the basketball card market? Does it have something to do with basketball playing basically around the clock um, since the bubble with the short break? Um, does it have something to do with grading? Like, what's your general perspective on just the nice collectible stuff that people like us are pro and people listening are pursuing and stuff that is, you know, more commodity based 
Um, what's your perspective on what the market is doing and maybe reasons why? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of everything that you kind of touched on there. I'd say, um, you know, the PSA shutdown, I mean, it has to have some impact on, you know, people's desire for the the the, the current product coming out. But, you know, the biggest part is is definitely the rookie class. I mean, you know, 2018 and 19 and 1920, we were blessed with, you know, two great back-to-back rookie classes. Um, I'm not sure this rookie class is terrible, but I don't think it's, you know, it's a step down. Um, and I, you know, beyond that, I would just say it's, you know, probably the biggest thing driving prices for those cards is just the populations themselves. You know, I mean, there's um, more printing going on the last couple of years than there was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And then, everything that's being pulled out of packs is getting graded. So, I mean, you know, you've got more printing and more grading. Um, people weren't pulling 2012 Prism and grading it right away. People weren't pulling 2006 Topps Chrome and grading every single thing that came out of the pack, right? So um, if you've got more cards and more cards getting graded, um, it's going to dilute, you know, the the value of, of the card. You know, every single card that shows up in a slab dilutes the value of of every other card um you know at that same grade and so right now it's you know it's nice that psa is working through the backlog but when you hear it's a 12 million card backlog you know you're gonna you're gonna continue to see those population reports you know climb on those cards i mean there's just i think that's the biggest thing driving it um is just there's so many of those cards and i, I didn't do a lot of you know data diving, you know, before this, but I mean, it's one of those things when you look at how many cards are graded from 2019, 20 prism, it's like 10, 20, 30 X, like 2014 prism. Right. And then, you know, 13 and 2012 or even lower populations. So, um, more cards, more cards getting graded. It's going to, you know, dilute, dilute the, you know, the value of each card. Yeah, I think that's good perspective. And I know we were chatting before we started recording about pullback and why in all markets, um, there's always going to be pullback on stock market, um, alternative investments. And I think we're seeing some of that on the basketball side. And it might not necessarily be a bad thing because it uh, might get participants to um, not do things in the hobby that are skewing um, the growth. And so I think the pullback that we're seeing ultimately can lead to more positive outcomes. What's your perspective? Do you have any thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, people that have, most people I think in the hobby right now have probably been back in the hobby for two years or less. And if you've been in the hobby the last two years, you've pretty much just seen cards go up. Right. And that's just the function of as more people enter the hobby, you know, it's going to continue to kind of push up prices. I think we're getting to a point where, you know, the level of growth in the hobby is probably slowing. I think the hobby's still growing, but it's not growing as fast as it was growing, right? And so, um, you know, that's just led to a point where some people are like, uh, hey, I'm, prices are at a point where I can realize some healthy gains. I'm going to sell cards and, you know, prices go up, you know, it attracts sellers. Prices come down, it, it generally attracts buyers. Um, but you know, in terms of perspective, I mean, I think it's still just important to realize that, 
many of the cards that people use as a barometer for the hobby, like, you know, the 86, 87 Fleer Jordan, I think that's the one that gets cited the most in basketball, right? Or the, the Topps Chrome rookie for, for LeBron. I mean, many of these cards um, just in December of last year, you know, were, let's say $200,000. And, you know, by February, it's $700,000. And people are concerned that the card's now at $400,000, you know, a couple of months later. But, um, you know, I mentioned this earlier, that card traded between twenty dollars and $30,000 for years, right? Like hundreds and hundreds of transactions in that range where people were always confident that if they bought the card in that range, like there was, you know, a, a safety net or a floor there, right? And uh, look, the card never sold for over $500,000. You've got literally just a handful of transactions at these huge numbers. And so it just takes time for people to get comfortable with kind of the new economic realities of some of these cards. And, you know, when a card goes from 300K to 700K in two or three sales, it's probably natural that you're going to, you know, attract more buyers who are like, wow, I bought this card for 25 grand in 2018. You know, it's 2020. I can realize a three, $400,000 gain on a card you're going to generate sellers. And, you know, the same thing's going to happen at just lower levels of cards. We like to point to kind of the big cards, but a card that was 2000 in December is suddenly $5,000 in February. Like that's a lot, somebody's rent payment or, you know, you could buy a used car for that. Um, you've got a kid coming, right? You could start like a 529 plan for your kid because college is going to be crazy expensive in 18 years, or maybe it won't. I don't know. But um, the point is, uh, you know, things go up, things go down. When the prices go up so quick, um, generally, you know, that's, I don't want to say it's not a good thing, but you can expect things to kind of pull back and figure out where is the market comfortable, where there's a new floor. And you know what you normally find is that, you know, the new floor is higher than the old one, right? So it goes up, it retreats, it builds a new base of people that are willing to buy the card at that level. And as people get more confident at that level, that's when you think you see the prices start uh, you know, perking up again. I know this kid thing on my end is getting pretty serious. This is the second 529 call out uh, this weekend. We need some tax advantage, like, uh, you know, card, uh, you know, I don't know if there's a way, if somebody out there knows how to get my cards into, you know, into like a 403B or like into my, you know, IRA or something like that. All right, now we've got a bunch of uh, accounting and uh, finance nerds excited out there. So maybe we pivot off this topic and talk about the Jordan example. And I, I think I, I hear a lot of whispers and people saying things online just about fluctuating prices and people like Ken Golden and him having an impact. And I think just I'll, I'll put my marketer hat on and, and take a step back and just say, hey, like everybody, like Ken's job is to generate interest. Ken's job is to promote the cards that he is selling on his site and bring as many eyeballs to his platform and those auctions as humanly possible. And he's really good at it. Like he gets on Instagram, he goes live, he shares what is being sold. And I think with what he is doing and with his skill set, um, he's bringing in new eyeballs and new eyeballs that might not be in the hobby or in the weeds day to day like uh, you or I, but people who are um, coming in and are interested in cards and might have the capital to put into cards. And so 
I guess with that being said, like, you know, I tip my cat to him from a marketing and promotions perspective. I think he's generating more interest, but maybe flip the question back to you is you know, how big of a role do you think can in these auction houses and promotion have to do with kind of the changing landscapes and the ebbs and flows with some of these prices on these big cards? Well, uh, you know, first off, I would just say like there was a lot kind of going around social media the last couple of weeks kind of crapping on on Ken or on golden auctions, kind of flooding the market with these high-end cards, that sort of thing. Um, I, I always felt that was misplaced. I mean, he's not selling his own cards, you know, he's selling other people's cards. <laughs> um, it goes back to what we were just talking about, which is just Ken has done such a good job bringing eyeballs on the, the marketplace, right? And on these record sales. Um, I've got friends that are not involved with the hobby and they're like messaging me about, you know, the LeBron $5.2 million sale last week. Um, so when you get those kind of headlines and you get those sort of eyeballs on the hobby and you get these record prices, I mean, it just goes back to it's generating, you know, other people are thinking, you know, like, Hey, I've been sitting on this card for 10 years. I bought this card for $12,000. It's worth a million dollars now. You know I mean? People literally, you know, that's, that, that is kind of the, the calculus that they're looking at. And um, so, you know, it's bringing cards to market. I mean, uh, I think Ken's done nothing but bring more people into the hobby. And some of the people coming into the hobby, they've got much deeper pockets than you and I. And so they're kind of just in a different stratosphere. And look, I think that's good for the market to kind of have more market participants. Um, and, you know, if people want to sell their cards and take advantage of the prices, like, what, can you fault somebody, right? Like, I mean, look, if you want to buy more cards, I put a bunch of cards for sale on my story this week. And I got some messages like, hey, sir, are you cashing out on Kobe now? Is, is, are, you know, are, are you done with all these cards? And it's like, no, I own like 30 different Kobe refractors. I'm selling three of them to fund something else that I'm buying. It doesn't mean like the sky is falling, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, I always ask people like, do you love cards? And, you know, if the answer is yes, it's like if the card prices go down, are you just going to bail and, and, and you're out, you know, you're out of the hobby? Um, I didn't really get back into the hobby to, you know, to make a fortune. You know, I, I saw it as a way to kind of maybe diversify some investments, that sort of thing. But as you kind of get into it, if you find a passion for the hobby itself and you love collecting, you know, that's really what it's about. And, you know, making money isn't what drives most of my purchases. At this point, you know, there's definitely that element in the hobby where people are motivated by making money. And so, look, if prices go down, you might lose some people in, in the hobby if that's their sole motivation. But, um, you know, maybe we don't need those people if, if that's the only thing they care about. Right. So um, but I, I find most people that are in cards, you know, they love collecting cards. Uh, you know, there's a deep seated like passion for it. And if they can make money along the way, then then great. They like that too. Yeah. I just want to piggy off, back off of what you said. And I think most collectors and most people I interact with in the hobby collect specific players, maybe three, four or five different players they collect. And then they, you know, go deep and collect years and rookies and specific parallels. And, you know, all of a sudden, right. A card they need pops up and it's like 15 or $20,000. And they don't have fifteen or thousand twenty thousand dollars just lying around, but what they do have is those cards, right? And so they go and dip into their collection and figure out 
which cards that they can sell in order to cover the cost of the new card. So it's uh, when I see someone like you posting Kobe refractors, I'm not thinking to myself, oh, this guy's getting out of Kobe's. The sky is falling. I think more, oh, well, what cards out there that Sierra is going out and trying to chase? Yeah. And, um, you know, that's me. You just described me, right? It's like I collect Kobe. I collect a little LeBron. I collect some Lakers vintage. Um, and I collect Russell Wilson and, you know, there's like important sets or parallels and things like that, that I'm always kind of looking at that, uh, you know, pique my interest where like, uh, I know you bought a PMG recently, for instance. Right. And I, I've got that as a safe search. I probably can't, I probably can't afford the Kobe, you know, red PMG, but if like a nice Eddie Jones came up or something like that, you know, then, then maybe I would scoop something up like that. It's not. It's not my guy in terms of who I collect, but it's my team and it's an important set. It would be really cool to have something like that in, in the collection. Okay. So now on the PMG front, I think uh, it's the time to call it out and tell the story. Um, and I guess if Adam, the real 27 guy is listening, it's kind of my tip of the cap. It's like a, the Stockton to Malone moment. And I was Malone and you were Stockton. I think I woke up and I checked uh, my DMs. And you had sent me a couple cards. I'm not going to mention one card because a couple other people sent me that too. And I still might go pursue it. But the card that I want to talk about and the card that I bought, and I posted this on my Instagram if you follow me, is the Marvin Harrison uh, 97 PMG card. And when you sent me that card, I obviously know the significance and importance of PMG. Um, Marvin Harrison is one of my favorite football players of all time. I was in this moment where I had been searching for a, a, a Marvin card. And so I looked at this card and I said, huh, that's interesting. Put it down a little bit, went on with my day. I couldn't stop thinking about the card. It just invaded my brain so much so that I then thought about it from the perspective of my own personal collection. And mind you, I had no intention to spend this kind of money on a card I wasn't thinking about before you sent it over. But as I thought about it, I talked with my brother and he basically told me I was crazy if I didn't buy it. And then I thought about my own collection and immediately started thinking about, okay, if I had this card, where would this fit? And how would I rank it amongst my current PC? And any way I cut it, it started to become like a top five card in my PC. And when I thought about it from those contexts and all the memories of Marvin Harrison just took over, I knew I had to have the card, which is incredible. And this all started because you knew I'm a Colts fan and you knew I like Marvin Harrison and you knew PMGs are significant and this card popped up and you sent it over to me. So I think that's pretty cool. And I just love to understand your thoughts a little bit about connections in the hobby and just doing things like this. Um, so maybe dig, dig in a little bit on, on the importance of building relationships and connections. Well, I mean, uh, I think for me, it's like a big part of the fun in the hobby is just connecting with people and being able to talk about cards, right. Or to message about cards. And so um, you kind of, you pick a lot of the people I follow uh, collect a lot of the same things. So unfortunately some of Sometimes we're competing for the same card. So I can't just be like, hey, did you see this one? Because I'm sure they did see that one. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, look, I get as much, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid, right? You want to have the birthday party and get all the presents. But as you get older, you learn to kind of appreciate giving more than, than receiving. And so, um, you know, when you see something on your radar that, you know, uh, somebody else might be interested in. And, um, you know, with that card in particular, I just have a really general kind of, you know, sometimes I have very specific save searches, but I just kind of have something like 1997, like PMG Red, like, you know, catch all for anything that shows up. I saw it. I saw Colts. I saw the price tag on it. And I, you know, I think I mentioned to you, I'm like, for the same price in basketball, you get Rod Strickland. <laughs> and in football, for actually, I think it was a lower price. Lower. Uh, you, get, you get Marvin Harrison. So um, <laughs> it's not the exact same numbering. I think it's the Reds 150 in football and it's to, to 100 in, in basketball. But, you know, all that being said, Marvin Harrison was a far superior football player than and Rod Strickland was a basketball player um, in the grand scheme of things. And uh, so, so yeah, I, you know, I was glad to kind of help you out with that one. And, um, you know, I know what a, kind of what passion you have for the Colts. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you got it. And look, things like that, you know, I, I, you know, at some point it's like scratch my back, I'll scratch yours at some point. And so, uh, I'm a big believer in kind of karma. You know, you treat people well, they'll treat you well. Help people, you'll get help. And so, um, yeah, I it was just one of those things. I think that's just kind of in my my DNA a little bit. And um, I was super happy to help you out with that one. Well, I appreciate it. I think, you know, there's always boxes to check in these kind of pursuits. Like, if you like it, it's nostalgic. If the price is maybe a little cheaper than you expected. Um, so those are the things that all happened with me in that Marvin card. So we, maybe we transition to football. I know you're you're collecting Russ for as down as I. It seems like I am on ultra modern basketball. Uh, I couldn't be any different with ultra modern uh, football. Demand is up. It's higher than ever. You've got Brady, Mahomes, the hobby heartthrob Justin Herbert um, pulling it up, and there's a ton of excitement. And it makes sense, right? I think so many people watch football, play fantasy, gamble. Um, and football is just such a, uh, you know, staple in American sports, right? The whole day is dedicated to it. And so just as a rust collector, I'm curious, like, are you seeing kind of more interest and in just in the football card market? Um, just talk to me about some things you're seeing. I think, uh, I think this ties into what we were talking about earlier, which is just one reason basketball is probably down this year is the draft class isn't as good. And in football, you have just a, you know, you, you have one of the, the better draft classes in a long time. And specifically you've got quarterbacks that were drafted high in the draft that performed well. And there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of hype built into them. I mean, Justin Herbert had, I forget what his stats were, but it was like 36 touchdowns, nine interceptions through for 4,000 yards as a rookie. I mean, I, you're a Manning guy. I remember Manning, you know, as a rookie through like 30 interceptions. Right. So, I mean, you know, maybe understandably there's a lot of excitement for it, but some of those other things that you kind of, you know, people like to mention with basketball, you've got this international market and that's true. Um, you've got a lot of collectors in Asia um, and Europe uh, for basketball and, and football is more of, you know, it's obviously an American sport. But I think it's also important to remember just how big of a sport it is in the United States. I mean, 
the number of people that watch any given football game is like 10 to 15 times the number of people that are watching like a, a Saturday primetime basketball game. You know, like the reality is Monday night football gets like higher ratings than like an NBA finals game often gets. 12.1 million people tuned in on Thursday night for the draft. Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's just, you know, that's the draft and, you know, like the NBA draft. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm, I know it's, it's nowhere close to that. And uh, you know, the Super Bowl is the single, single most watched game in, in all of sports that I, at least, you know, domestically here in the United States. And then the other thing is, which I've heard you talk about a lot, which is just Brady winning that seventh championship, you know, um, a lot of sports, uh, you know, there's kind of a pecking order in terms of players and as Brady's, you know, elevates himself, you know, above everybody else, it pulls up his cards and everybody kind of trades at a multiple of what that is. Right. So I think, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And so, um, but, you know, even that said, I think there's a lot of opportunity in football. You know, uh, I think the market sometimes kind of works backwards, right? Like everybody, this is what happened in basketball. Everybody piled into the ultra modern stuff. And then slowly as collectors get more educated, they learn the sets, they, you know, they kind of work their, they work backwards. And, um, you know, I think in football, there's still, you know, even with Brady, I look at a lot of his kind of mid 2000s, early kind of refractors, things like that. They're not crazy when you look at the prices in context to a lot of the guys in basketball, right? Like, um, and then, or even Peyton Manning, you know, I, I messaged you about that legacy collection, 98, you know, rookie card to 100 and it sold, I, I think it was a record sale. Like last week, it sold for like $6,000 or something like that. I mean, that card, if it's Kobe Bryant, I mean, the cards, I don't even know. It'd be like 50 to a hundred thousand dollars. It'd be crazy. It wouldn't even be his rookie card. Uh, it's one of those things I, I still think like with football, I mean, maybe the market will never be um, and it probably won't. It'll never be on the level with basketball. Um, but I do think that there is room for, you know, there's more room for growth there, you know, in the immediate term versus, you know, maybe some of the stuff in basketball. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and it just goes back to the uh, discrepancies in between <laughs> Rod Strickland and Marvin Harrison's uh, PMG. You asked about Russ. I didn't address that. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, look, I don't have like a, a football team that I'm like uh, as diehard for as like I am with like the Lakers and in, in, in basketball. And Russ just, you know, when I kind of decided I wanted to get involved with football last year, um, he's a guy I've always rooted for. I've got some family that lives up there. Uh, I've seen him play live a couple of times. Um, he's won a Super Bowl, right? Um, so, he, you know, he's not untested. If you look at a lot of like, you know, over the last eight or nine years, who's thrown the most touchdowns, who's thrown the most deep touchdowns, who's led the most fourth quarter comebacks, like he's up at or near the, the top a lot, a lot of those lists. And um, he's just somebody who, you know, I'm not completely like betting on the future. He already has an established past. And he probably has five or six more good years left in him. And if he could pull out another Super Bowl, um, you know, I think there's opportunity there with him. And so for me, he's just somebody fun who I can root for, who's active, and he's already accomplished stuff. So even if he never wins another Super Bowl, sort of like Aaron Rodgers, you know, and Aaron Rodgers might. Um, but, you know, 
he's going to have an established kind of collector base. And, um, you know, when you see a Justin Herbert national treasures, RPA selling for $40,000 and you can go buy somebody who, you know, who's been to multiple pro bowls, who's already won a super bowl for a fraction of the price. I mean, uh, it just makes sense to me. I love uh, mitigating risk with a player like Russ, a fun player to collect, already won a Super Bowl, still got some time. So you had a post that spoke to me, and it was regarding a a contenders card. Um, Full disclosure for anyone, contenders is a requirement for me if I'm buying a new player. I love the rookie tickets or championship ticket, playoff ticket. The rookie and the autographs, uh, to me, that is the rookie card for football so you have a russ rookie ticket let's get the contenders hype train rolling if it wasn't already why does that card matter to you well i just think you know um in football specifically contenders is is one of those sets it's been around a long time i don't know what the first year that they released uh contenders rookie cards but i know they go back i mean about 20 years i think with those you know, uh, you look at the Brady, you know, card, the iconic Brady card is, is his contenders, you know, autograph. You know, I just think within each sport, you kind of have an established brand that is kind of looked at as kind of the, the you know, the important, you know, rookie autograph card. And I think contenders has just kind of captured that. And what I like about contenders is the, the parallels they're just not too over the top, right? You kind of have the rookie ticket, you've got the cracked ice, you've got the, you know, it varies a little bit kind of year to year, but you've got three or four parallels. You might have a variation or two in there, but it's a pretty simple system. The cards look great. They're on card autographs. You know, it's not Prism. It's not Topps Chrome. It's just something a little bit different that, you know, while contenders makes cards in other sports, I think in football, they've really just done a good job kind of, marketing that product, um, making it consistent year to year. And, um, you know, I think the, the Brady, you know, card selling and getting as much exposure as they have really over the last couple of months with those cards hitting, you know, record sale prices, I think just does more to kind of cement that brand as, uh, you know, one of the most important, you know, base rookie autographs that you can find for any, any given player in football. Yeah, you said it, um, and I think Bra- the Brady card is the card, and it shows confidence in contenders, and there will always be that confidence and security. And I think that's just good operating is that, you know, when a card is blowing up, you might not be able to afford that card, but start with that card and then dig into the set and see if there's other opportunities. I think there, the Brady factor will always exist in football, and all roads lead to Brady. So maybe think about it and and you make decisions off of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, I like exquisite. I like NT, but like when it comes to football, I still think that um, contenders has a lot to offer. And, you know, the base rookie ticket autograph, it's, you know, for most players, it's, you know, it's an affordable card that I still think is important for most, you know, most guys that you collect. Um, And then, you know, if you want something more rare, you can get like the playoff ticket or you can get the championship ticket or the cracked ice or, um, you know, for Russ, like I just have the base uh, rookie ticket and, you know, it's that, that cracked ice. It's like I, I mentioned this in my post, the, the PSA pop on the cracked ice is zero. Like they just 
they don't have one. Um, I'm not sure what the BGS uh, pop is, but um, the only one I've ever actually seen for sale since I've been looking for it is just there's one on alt listed for $70,000. So it must be rare. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the total pop is. I think it might be 25 or less, but um, it's not a card you see very often. And then even the um, the playoff ticket to 99, I, I did bid on one of those a few months back and just, you know, it's one of those things you ask me like, what's good for Russ and like certain cards, you know, like third year prism silver, it's, it's not that strong, but like when you see a card like that, like the playoff ticket to 99, you know, it sat there at like two or $3,000 for like, you know, the first six days of the auction and somehow in the last 30 seconds, the card goes to $12,000. Like I just, I wasn't prepared for that. Um, I was prepared to pay pretty heavy for the card, but I just didn't expect the market to be that strong. And so I, I do think people within player collecting and football recognize the contenders, especially the rare contenders cards as the super important. So I think, yeah, there's been some surprises on my end uh, as interest continues to go up, but maybe last topic, I want to make sure I touch on this and it has to do with PSA and BGS because I know you sub with both. I have been on a rampage talking about the SP authentic Peyton Manning from Ken Golden sales and the discrepancy in between the nine BGS 9.5 and, and PSA 10. I'd love to get your perspective because I know you spend a lot of time collecting both PSA and BGS and subbing with both. Um, have you noticed in your interaction the gap widening and just share some overall perspective on just BGS 9.5 and PSA 10s? Well, I mean, like you, I've got a lot of cards in PSA and in BGS slabs. Um, you know, your guest last Friday, he said, you know, talking about grading, like at the end of the day, the card is the card, right? And so whether your card is in a BGS slab or a PSA slab, it's the same card, right? So I think it's important to keep that in perspective. And we can all look at our collection and we probably have PSA 10s that could, would probably be BGS 9.5s. And we have BGS 9.5s that could easily be PSA 10s. Um, I do think uh, the market certainly puts a premium on PSA. Uh, you know, my general kind of feel for things are that, um, you know, a BGS 9.5 min is right now selling most of the time for about 40% of a PSA 10. And even... BGS 9.5s that um, are, are true gems, you know, they sell for 50%, you know, of, of a PSA 10 quite often. And, you know, you, you posted the, the post last week where I don't remember what the, you know, the multiplier was, but it's like the PSA 10 sold for three and a half X, like the, the BGS 9.5 or something like that. And um, look, I just look at things like that as an opportunity. Um, most of the time, most of my searches don't involve like PSA 10. There's one chase that I want all the cards in a PSA 10 right now, which is 2014 Prism Kobe's. And that's just for the uniformity of it, right? But like if I'm chasing an important card or a rare card, I do not care which slab the card comes in. Um, and oftentimes I prefer a BGS 9.5 because I know it's just going to cost me less money. That's you know, right. like 
there's definitely a good feeling when you have something that's slabbed in a PSA 10, like you're happy about it. Don't get me wrong. Like I love looking at that PSA 10 and you know, just full disclosure for me personally, if I could have one or the other, I'd prefer the PSA 10. Um, I slightly prefer the the slabs, not for every card. Some cards look better in, in kind of one slab or the other, but when you have that disparity, I just look at stuff like that as, as, you know, an opportunity for the most part. And I think, you know, over the long haul, things like that correct themselves. Now, look, there's, there's some risk with BGS slabs. Uh, we don't need to kind of go into all the issues with BGS itself, but I just feel like if BGS could do a better job from a PR perspective, if they could, uh, you know, increase the transparency in terms of like what their plans are for the future and what they're looking to do. Um, you know, just things to kind of instill confidence in the brand itself. They don't need to be PSA per se, right? But I think they could be doing a lot more to make collectors, you know, feel confident in the brand, like acknowledge issues, mistakes, and let us know what you're planning, you know, what, what the future holds. And, and we just don't get a lot of that you know, from BGS. And, you know, frankly, just a little experience I had recently, um, you know, when PSA shut down, I figured BGS would get swamped, right? It makes sense. PSA is not accepting any cards for a few months. A lot of people are going to look to send their cards to BGS because that's kind of the number two grading company. And I sent an express order, you know, which um, I, I sent to them a few days after PSA shut down. I had the cards back in my hand in less than two weeks. So they're not so overwhelmed. You know, they can take cards, they can grade cards, but you know, by and large, like I, I have a lot, I have as much faith in a, you know, a card graded with BGS as I realistically do with, with PSA. The one thing that, you know, I think helps PSA is because they have such a dominant position in the hobby. It reinforces people's opinions of PSA because 80% 80% of your collections in a PSA slab, it's, you know, you're going to, you're going to tout the virtues of PSA just to kind of prop up your own collection to some degree. And I, I think that it almost becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy like that, right? Like a PSA 10 should be more because, you know, Hey, I own 40 PSA 10s and, and I want them to be worth more, but um, you know, for the rare stuff, the important cards, like personally, it doesn't matter which slab it's in to me. Um, I just want a card that the grade, you know, reflects the actual condition of the card. And I want to get that card at, at a price that, uh, you know, that works for, for my budget. And, and, you know, I feel confident in. I love it. And the Marvin that you sent over to me, which is in a, a BGS slab and an 8.5 and none of it matters to me. If, if you get the card that you want, that's, that's ultimately the, the thing that matters the most. And if you can pay 50% off because it's in a BGS slab or 70% off because it's in a BGS slab, great. You know, I don't think in the long run, the slab will matter quite as much. So long as the card is, you know, reflects the actual grade on that slab and it's the card that you want. 100%. A lot of ground covered is always with you, Sierra. We talked about card shows, grading, ultra modern, basketball going down, football going up. PMG stuff. Do you have anything else you want to uh, comment on here in closing? You know, I would just say, you know, keep perspective on the hobby. You know, cards go up, cards go down. 
we've been blessed, you know, as a hobby to see tremendous growth, uh, to see most of our collections kind of balloon in, in value, you know, um, you know, to, to set up kind of the next kind of boom in the hobby. I think you have to let a little air out of the balloon, right? And find people uh, that, that want to own these cards long-term because look, if the prices are such that, you know, 20, 30% of the people want to cash out, like, you know, that's, that's going to happen. But um, in the long run, that's probably good, right? It helps us kind of create a, a new base. And we're just at a, a point of the hobby too, where I think a lot of people have gotten smart, right? And so their people aren't just buying every last thing. And so they're, they're taking their time, they're using their card equity to fund the next thing, right? And so that means that maybe some of the ultra modern stuff or some of the grading and flipping that we've cu- grown accustomed to will, you know, will slow down. Um, and people have to sell some things to buy new things. But, um, you know, so long as people are in the hobby for the right reasons and we, you know, continue to have new people come into the hobby, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a time to panic. I think it's just a time to take a deep breath. And and frankly, you know, you, it's going to be a good opportunity probably to to scoop up some cards over the next couple of months that, that maybe a month or two ago weren't realistic for your budget. You can follow him at California Card Collector. I'm sure I'll have you back on to drop some more perspective. Always have fun with you and chatting about sports cards. Take care, man, and take it easy. Thank you. Take care, Brett. Thank you. I always have a good time talking with Sierra. I just love his perspective on what's going on in the hobby. Very level-headed, knows how to mitigate risk, and knows how to come on the pod and drop some knowledge. I love that. Go follow at California Card Collector. Take care of yourself, take care of the others around you, and I'll be back next week with more Stacking Slabs podcasts.